And now, beautiful people going fast on fire. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast, Kino Club Edition. Welcome to True Fiction's Kino Club. Tonight on Kino Club, we're going to be talking about the 1982 American science fiction horror film directed by John Carpenter. That would be The Thing. And why are we talking about The Thing tonight? Because this is its 40th anniversary this year. This story is based on a 1938 John Campbell novella, Who Goes There? It tells the story of a group of American researchers in Antarctica who encounter the eponymous Thing, a parasitic extraterrestrial life form that assimilates then imitates other organisms. Without further ado, Kino Club present The Thing. Kino Club has now come to order. Let's introduce the members at hand. I'm Marshall. I'm Norbert. I'm Pat. And we're going to be talking about The Thing. What are our first impressions of this movie? One of the things that I thought of as I was watching it again is there was a lot of the same themes in this movie that was in Alien that came out a, a couple years prior. I think it was, was it 79, maybe 80? Something um, like that. It played with the idea of isolation. It played with the idea that you can't trust those that are around you. And it played with the idea of losing your humanity. And while it's there's similar themes, the locations and the treatment, I thought, was different enough that I I enjoyed both those movies for different reasons. I've been a big fan of this movie for quite some time. You mentioned Alien, and that's another survival horror movie. So there are some similarities. The other nomenclature for this is a spam in the can movie where uh, where these people are stuck in a situation where it's some, they really have no way out and they they have to try to survive. So that was Alien. That was the thing. That's one of my favorite types of movies that are out there. I know there's more. I can't think of them at this time. But there's also a lot of games, too. One thing that I really like about this is John Carpenter's direction. How he takes his time to basically let it unfold. You're not being told. You're being shown. There's a lot of things that happen in the very beginning that are just put question marks in your head. I really envy anybody that has never seen this and they're seeing it for the first time because that was a wonderful experience for me when I had first seen it. There's so much you don't understand about it. The other thing that I wanted to point out is John Carpenter is known for his soundtracks. But this soundtrack is is so minimal. It's it's amazing how, how little music is actually in this. The music that he wrote for this is very sparse. It's almost like a Jaws, dun-dun, dun-dun, but it's just a one-note, dun Dun, dun, which really amps up the kind of the the creepiness. And then other than some incidental noises, the only other music in this when some of the characters play music on on the radio. It's really, really effective that way. I think it adds to the feeling of being alone and isolated. Yeah, I agree. I really enjoy this film. Uh, I really enjoy uh, John Carpenter's works. He's probably one of my favorite horror directors think some of the things that I that really stick out to me about this film that make it above and beyond other films are uh, probably the cast. I think it's it's really an amazing cast, and I think they did an awesome job acting. I also think a lot of the script really feels like there's no fat on it at all. There's just every line is precisely delivered, and there's so many iconic lines in this too that really stick out when you watch it, and so many iconic scenes that stick out and really 
just go be above and beyond other films in a lot of ways. The creepiness element of it, I think, I was thinking about this earlier too, is that there's not really a horror film that plays with its environment like this one does, where they're, uh, you know, basically, since they are stuck inside away from the, the weather and the cold, I can't really think of another horror film that does that, that, you know, in, in a cold weather climate like that. Uh, and it kind of becomes a character unto itself, the way the, the landscape and the backdrop of the scenery is. An interesting thing that happens in this movie, I, every every time I watch it, I, I don't know if I'm catching new things or I'm just, these things are hitting me again. But there's a scene where a Norwegian person is killed, he's shot, and he was actually shooting at well, basically he was shooting at a dog, but he actually shoots a person, and so they take him out. The interesting thing to me is somebody suggests that maybe we're at war with Norway. And I thought, back at this time, the radio man is telling, you know, this is in 82. So they didn't have, uh, satellites were st- were out there, but they weren't as, as many as they are now. And the radio man talked about how they hadn't talked to people in weeks, six weeks, I think he said. So it's very interesting that these people were definitely isolated and that when he brought this up, maybe we're at war with Norway. I thought, you know, I remember watching it before going, that's that's kind of a ridiculous line. And this time I watched it and I thought, you don't know. You you have no, they have no clue what's going on in the outside world. And they're, they're stuck in the Antarctic. There's also isolation like that also makes you more paranoid and you don't process things quite like you do in a normal environment. Yeah. Something else that I was thinking about that I think makes this film so iconic is that a lot of movies or stories, there's a clear beginning and end, and they're kind of wrapped up with a nice bow. This is more like the story is happening before us, you know, and and then we as the spectator watch it with this outpost, and then even after the film ends, we can assume that the story goes on. And I don't see that a lot in a lot of things, but I, I think that's something that's made it iconic and also timeless in a way because um, there's other forms of art that have picked up on this. I've seen things from just like fan art drawings to how the end of this would have played out if, if the spectator were to still be viewing it to you know video games that were picked up after the fact of the story. And then... I believe there's also been things of of like a prequel in the works. Very confusing, but they came out in 2011 with a, a movie called The Thing. And it's actually a prequel to what happened in The Thing. One thing I like to do is sometimes we'll watch them back to back. So we'll watch the number two, which basically is actually the in the sequence, in the chronology, it's it's number one. And you watch that, and then you watch The Thing, the John Carpenter 1982 thing, and they really just butt up against each other so well. They matched everything when they go to this other place, um, the Norwegians' camp. It just, it, it's exactly, exactly alike. There are people that don't care for that movie. A lot of people, and this is the bad, this could be considered also the bad of the, of the 1982 version, is that they used strictly practical effects, which means that nothing was digital. Everything was real. Everything was, it's bladders and bubbles, you know, throwing things around and moving the tentacles. I guess there is some, there's a little bit of digital around the end of it. And uh, there might be some digital and some photography that, that was in there. But other than that, for the most part, it's, it's all practical. And a lot of people don't care for that practical. 
But then again, when the new thing came out in 2011, people griped that the digital wasn't it wasn't good. It looked too it just it looked too smooth. So I mean, uh, I liked them both. I mean, I don't think you can beat the John Carpenter version. The 2011 version is really good and it fits in really well. And I just like that universe. I really love that that desolation in the you know Antarctic and and these people having to. I mean, no, you can basically say nobody gets out of this alive. You don't know that, but it just feels like it's it's desperate and they're basically everything they're working forward is to save the human race. And I I think that's a very very cool, you know, thing. One of the things that makes it interesting is that towards the end, at least I felt like this. You didn't feel like they won necessarily. I mean, them going back like Predator at the end where Schwarzenegger makes it out him and the and the girl you well that's a win. Well, in this case, you don't what I thought was very interesting about how they framed that story is like do you really want them to get out or do, would it be better if they just don't make it and they stay up there and you know. And so I thought that was pretty good storytelling in terms of you you start to really question what's 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 a win here. The win is them that thing not getting out into the broader population. So I thought that was interesting. In terms of what you was commenting earlier about the practical versus digital, my one criticism of this movie is I thought that they lingered on some of the practical, like the the, the models and stuff, a little too long. I think sometimes when you have something that they've done, which I think I thought it was it was good, well done. I just feel like the suspension of disbelief erodes the longer something's on when it's practical. Sometimes it erodes the longer it's on screen. So that would be my only gripe, minor gripe on this movie. As I watched it again, I was really impressed with it. Like the opening scenes is real. I mean, it's really well done. And then towards the end, it's very, you know, that scene where it's all burning behind him and he's silhouetted. I mean, it's just beautiful shots, beautiful shots. Talking about the when you were discussing the basically the end where, you know, do they survive? That's even, you know, what Childs is saying, you know, how do we survive? And and um, and McCready says, maybe we shouldn't. But I thought that was, you know, I thought it was very telling. You know, in my head, I like to think that somebody came to rescue him. But there's been games put out digital games and they don't make it in the games nobody <laughs> makes it but it's uh but the end but they're very they're a lot of fun you know and i i just got uh i think for one of the holidays my birthday or something like that i got incident at outpost 31 game and it's a blast and it's it's survival horror it's also cooperative play so that's very interesting everybody has to play along even though maybe one of these people is the thing this is a tabletop game. Tabletop game, absolutely, yeah. And it's it's a lot of fun. I really like that. Like I've said before, I love that world. They really did a great job. Now, there's a an earlier version of this, 1948, like The Thing. And is it, uh, is it called uh, The Thing from Another World? Yeah, yeah, The Thing from Another World. And it's interesting because I remember when I first watched the John Carpenter The Thing, and I thought, Wow, they really jacked with the story. They just totally messed it up because it's nothing like the earlier one. And then I found out that, no, John Carpenter's a thing is closer to the John Campbell novella who goes there. Really, when you see the thing, John Carpenter's the thing, you're seeing what John Campbell, the writer, 
had actually ex- that's actually what he wrote. Now, here's another interesting thing about that, I think, so anyway. It's a novella called Who Goes There? That's what the thing is based on. Well, a few years back, they found that John Campbell, who's since passed, he wrote this story in 1938. He actually had written more. He had a longer story. So these people got a, together and they published the whole novella, the, the, the bigger novel, which is uh, called Frozen Hell. So it's, a, it's still John W. Campbell Jr., and it's called Frozen Hell, and it's the more complete story of the thing. Is the characters and everything pretty much similar to the to the movie? Um, they're they're a bit different. It's and it's oh, it's been a long time since I've read it. I just remember them being very different. Another thing that I thought was interesting about thing about this movie is that you know doing illustration the. Poster from The Thing, the 1982 Thing, was done by Drew Struzan, who's a famous movie poster creator. He's done stuff for Back to the Future, Star Wars, and a bunch of Steven Spielberg projects. Anyway, he got the call from John Carpenter, and he said, I need a poster to go to print tomorrow to Drew Struzan. Oh, wow. So he took a Polaroid of himself in an outfit, and send it to them, uh, you know, fax it to them, and they was go. And so the next day, the, the delivery boy comes at 6 a.m., and he, ma- he makes them wait till 9. It was painted in acrylic, and they said when they put it underneath the, the glass to take the photo of it, it was still wet and it stuck to the glass. Oh, man. Huh. It's this poster. That- yeah, it's like the explosion out of his head. And it's a pretty iconic image from from that movie. But at any rate, I thought it was interesting in that all the stars aligned on that project because they got an iconic image in less than 24 hours. <laughs> the, at least the artwork. The, the sad thing is that the movie came out. It grossed $19.6 million during its theatrical run, which is not bad. But the critics didn't care for it a whole lot. And it took a few years uh, for people to start coming around to that movie. And I think it was kind of a, a fanboy groundswell kind of thing. I don't think everybody gets Carpenter's films, which is sad, you know, because I, I really, I think his stories are amazing. Now, he didn't write this story. The screenplay was written by Bill Lancaster. But when you watch this film, there's so much John Carpenter all over it. You just see his hand everywhere. And he, he used the same practical effects people for movie after movie, for, for good or for bad. The movie kind of gained a cult following, and a lot of people think that it might be the best science fiction and horror movie ever made. So, It's definitely a well-done movie, and there's, there's no doubt about that. And I wonder if part of the, the criticism at the time was that it wasn't judged on its own. It was, like I said, it had a lot of themes comparable to Alien, and I wondered if there was people subconsciously trying to compare the two as opposed to judging it on its own merit. I really like the idea. I think one of them, as we're talking through this, as a, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was the sort of open-ended ending. What was the name of the movie that Tom Hanks was in with the ball? Castaway. Castaway. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And that ended on a question. And I thought that that was very in, interesting. This and this was more subtle about it. I, I this is I really appreciated this ending in that it was um, just very true to life in a way, you know, because a lot of times things are not wrapped in a neat little bow. I felt like with Castaway, I felt like they just ran out of 
time. They ran out of good ideas. That left me hanging. This <laughs> movie, I, I imagine, thing I imagine what's, what happened to Childs and McCready. You know, I, these guys are cemented in my head. You know, they're so iconic. Sometimes I, 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 you know, I think about what would happen. How could they have got out of there? You know, you just, you don't want them to go. They're such great characters, you know, <laughs> and they're so strong. Both of them actually are very strong characters. You don't want them to have just died in the in the freezing cold. I think one thing I really appreciate about this movie too is the there's a really good dynamic between the highs and lows, you know, in the sense of uh, like plotting to build tension, and then when it is go time, it's like they they really put the pedal to the metal on things, like thinking about. And I think that's uh, part of the reason I think it's held up so well over time too is something that I noticed like while watching it, there's a scene where they're testing the blood to see who's the thing and who's not, and they find out. Uh, I think it's Windows. Or no, no, it's not Windows. It's um the other guy. I can't think of his name. He's kind of the Joker of yeah. the group. But uh, so he starts shaking, and his head splits open, and then he his head bites Windows and picks up his whole body like it's nothing, you know. And and I'm just thinking like there's not really any effects like that. Like it's almost like a lot of movies today are like if there's a beast or an animal or a, or a monster or an alien like this. It almost doesn't show the full force of the of the monster, but this was such a terrific and fantastic way to show, you know, like, oh, crap, you know, this is <laughs> picking up a whole dude by his head like it's nothing and tossing him around. And the effect, I think, you know, there's some parts of it that look hokey, but overall, I think it still really carries that that kind of shock value to where watching it to you know earlier today i was like uh i was like wow this is still really impactful for being 40 years old and i i really appreciate that another another thing too this is such a small thing but it it really adds to it is when they put the flamethrower on that thing and it it busts through the wall and it runs out into the snow and then it basically collapses due to being on fire McCready takes a stick of dynamite yeah. and throws it, and the thing just boom, <laughs> obliterated. You know, <laughs> it's like that is such a it's such a small thing, but at the same time, one of the coolest action sequences, <laughs> you know, in a horror film. <laughs> you know, and it's such a childish thing in the sense of I'm just like, yeah, the stuff exploding. <laughs> you know, but but at the same time, it well, was it was very nobody visceral. Nobody wasn't running from an explosion, which was nice. I. Oh, that's true. I was half expecting Marshall to whip out. Well, the thing made all the all the characters better. Which <laughs> yeah. was, you know, really improved which, their all situation. You guys misunderstand. <laughs> but that, yeah, that was such a cool sequence, and it really showed the the force and kind of the you know how not human this was, and and it just you know it doesn't stop. You're you're basically forced to witness the the chaos that this this alien this thing is you know another interesting thing for me was the idea that we never did get to see the actual alien not not in its true form so it was always either already imitating fully imitating the the creature that it was uh simulated or it was in between the simulations i think the truest form that i think was in this was in the close to the end where McCready is in the generator room and everybody <laughs> just everybody disappears. <laughs> so <laughs> he's got this uh, plunger uh, with, you know, I don't, I don't know if it has dynamite yet or not, but all of a sudden this thing just flies at him underneath the ground and everything comes up and 
knocks him over. When he gets up, there's tentacles that come out of the ground. You know, and so this thing is some kind of a tentacled creature, which I thought that's that's pretty wild. Question becomes if there is a pr- pure form for him. Yes, well, that's because true. Maybe by the time he was on his ship, he had already assimilated who knows what. When. Well, and I also thought they pointed out every aspect of it as a living organism, you know, instead right. of just one whole every cell. Mm-hmm. Yep. But it's working together somehow to because it, you know, you don't see these just little things. You see the dog, or you see, you know, one of the the characters of the of the movie, you know, that has become. That is made up of the, the all those little things. So they they actually work together, but every every uh, it seems like every piece of it's sentient in its own right. I think a, another great scene that it uh, really helped build the story or or the mystique of the thing was um, because you don't really get a full view. You know, you see it you see it transformed and stuff. So it, you can kind of kind of plays on your imagination of what you would be afraid of or. Um, what to think of the thing but another thing that got me was the um when they go to check on blair and they find this giant tunnel and then basically a whole spacecraft has been built within a matter of hours you know so you you kind of piece together that not only is this thing super strong and and you know can shape shift but is also very smart and fast and has like accomplished a lot within a couple hours which is kind of scary in its own right this movie starts out, and this is a lot of time this is forgotten about just because it happens so quick and then everything changes. But if you remember at the very beginning of this movie, there's a ship hurtling towards Earth, and then you just see it coming down. It looks like it's kind of, you know, it's kind of tilting back and forth, like maybe there's something wrong. And it cra- and then you don't you don't then you don't see it. It just comes into the Earth's atmosphere, blazes up, and you don't see anything else. Then we're we're in Antarctica with the, the Norwegian. So between those scenes, we're basically told, uh, you know, as the story unfolds, it's been 100,000 years because that's what they they estimate that that ship being. That really just really gets to me. I mean, I think we, 1982, we understood space travel in, in, you know, 14, the 1400 or the 1500s if this thing would have landed, we would have no clue. We would have thought it was a god, basically. Or a plague. or so, I don't know what we would have thought it was. I think you could do this. The chariots of the gods. Absolutely. Well, you know, so, of course, me, I'm seeing the tentacles. I'm seeing this creature that seems to live forever. This creature is basically has just wants to destroy mankind. I, it sounds like a uh, Lovecraftian creature, you know, H.P. Lovecraft kind of thing. And that's been brought up. I'm not like, I'm not the uh, original person to say that, but I think that's very interesting. I'd like to examine that a little bit more, you know, in, in, in something, in a story or in a book or something. I think that's, I mean, we're just seeing one of these things and maybe that's all there is of this. It may be just one organism that is a world into itself. But uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's something to think about. In terms of writing a story in which you incorporate the lore of ancient civilizations in into your horror science fiction today, aliens. Yeah, I think that's a a good uh, point out. You know about it being kind of a Lovecraftian monster. Um, you know, and and John Carpenter definitely has uh, Lovecraft influence and is credited with um, one of the best. Uh, representations of Lovecraftian horror with uh, In the Mouth of Madness. Absolutely. You know, one thing that is hard to do 
uh, and it's really hard to do well, is to put out a movie based on Lovecraft's stories. It just it just has never seemed to work very well, except for In the Mouth of Madness, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. But once again, it's a John Carpenter, and it suffers from some not quite right practical effects. But the bottom line is those are small humps to get over for such an enjoyable film. But actually, we're not talking about that movie tonight. We're talking about The Thing. <laughs> One of the things that while I was watching this again, I was thinking about Wilford Brimley went from being like a middle-aged guy to old. <laughs> almost instantaneous. It's like I saw him in this movie in the 80s, and he looks like, you know, a middle-aged guy. And then fast forward to whatever it was the 90s and he was on Seinfeld as a postmaster general yeah. <laughs> and he looked like he was you know he aged three decades within that you know from the 80s to the 90s and it was you know it was just interesting to see him as a younger man I think losing the mustache also uh you know youngs him up a little bit but I have I, I don't know how many movies he had been in prior to that but it was a, a Wilford Brimley on the uh, credit, and I had never seen that before, that listing. It was always Wilford Brimley. It was. I thought it was interesting. He was like something like fifty when he did Cocoon, so he's always he's looked old for quite a while. And yeah, that big cookie duster that he had, a uh, you know, under his nose, really uh, helped him look old. Is all gray and everything but and he's what it's one of my favorite uh characters in this movie he has some really pivotal uh scenes i tell you the thing about this movie and seeing it so often is i i look forward to certain scenes and one the one is when they go visit him in the you know they've got him up in this tool shed and they go visit him and he's you know he went crazy what happens he just goes crazy and starts because he kind of figured out what was going on so he just tears up all the he tears up the helicopter and the one of the snow plows and he tears up the ray he's tearing up the radio equipment and they finally just take him up to this tool shed and they lock him in there and you know he's they drug him you know they just basically say you need to calm down here dude then they go check on him and he's He's saying, I'm all right now. I, I feel much better. And there's a noose hanging there. You know, it's like so much is told right then and there. It's just, oh, man, it was that's such a, a, a amazing scene. The other thing I really like, too, uh, talking about characters is how stoic Kurt Russell's character McCready is. You know, there are people that like I know that there was a part where he shoots a guy that that lunged at him and so then they test and and find out that that guy was actually human and so child says well then you that makes you a murderer and mccready doesn't say a thing he just keeps going you know (laughs) i just thought that you know that was so cool how he just was um very steadfast in what in his whole purpose on that outpost what's the old line sometimes you uh break a few eggs to make an omelet (laughs) yeah (laughs) He was very focused on the, on his uh, task ahead. He never de- deviates from that. I mean, it's almost like, you know, he was some sort of high-end soldier or something in a previous life. Yeah, and he's, you know, it's so you you get this picture of him this just basically a drunk, you know, this drunk, but when, you know, rubber meets the road, you know, he kicks in. I did like that they they included that uh I mean that he you know, he kills that guy when he lunges at him and stuff because he's, he's kind of a flawed hero, but it, it does put it to a point where he's like, you know, he's just trying to get a job done, you know, and figure out what's going on and then, <laughs> you know, worry about the repercussions after that. 
I think what's what's really underappreciated about this movie, at least in my mind, is even though it's a science fiction movie, even though you know it has practical effects and a in a fantastical storyline, the portrayals and the story feels very realistically grounded in human nature. People, how people behave, how people lose it, how people are flawed, but you can rise to an occasion. I, I think all those things are good. So much of the tension is built up in just the 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 reactions of our different people in that situation. You know, I think it I think that's what I think it gets to me because I because I feel like it feels real. You know, these people feel real. When you watch the uh, 19 and I've not <laughs> I don't know what year it is, but the old one. When you watch that one, everybody's clean cut and they're just, you know, and the scientists of course, uh as they did back then and still in a lot of movies, the scientists no, no, we need to study this thing, you know? And in this one, there was none of that. This, the scientist was not... He was like, oh, shoot, I know what's going on. We got to destroy everything, you know? <laughs> uh, I like how he really brought it up to the modern day. Uh, everybody had uh, beards. Uh, you know, there's little things that go through my mind. Uh, Palmer is always... He's always smoking pot, and he's talking all kinds of crap. And I thought, how much pot do you need for six months... In the in the Antarctic, and how do you get it there to the Antarctic? There's not like a mail run I, that I know of, so it, that's a weird thing. And, and the other thing too that I thought was yeah, uh, Santa Claus is not going to be dri- delivering it on the way back to the North Pole or <laughs> right. for Christmas. Well, here's the other thing too, and um, this is after watching this movie a lot. I, I don't know how many times I've seen it, but a lot. They had the barrel market corner, didn't they? They had so many barrels. Every time you've seen a scene, there's at least. <laughs> Four or five barrels just sitting there, you know, that some had fuel in them. I don't know what others had, maybe molasses. I don't know what they had, but there were <laughs> barrels everywhere over this around this place. That's all. Fuel and molasses. That's what <laughs> Pretty they much. Had. That's yeah. what they had, fuel and molasses. <laughs> One of the things that I was thinking about as we was talking is the design of the creature and stuff makes me wonder if that influenced on some level del toro because some of his creatures have not the same it has a different aesthetic but it has it feels like it's in the same zip code and while i think the thing that i like about this movie again is i am less interested in the practical effects and the, the situation as opposed to how the people reacted to that situation which i felt like was very realistic and I was wondering, I couldn't, I mean, outside of him, I can't think of any movies that have the same sort of feel, which I wish there was more movies more predicated on that kind of idea. But people, how do real people react in exceptional circumstances? Because in the 80s, we started getting into the action hero era from the, what, mid 80s to the mid 90s in 90s. And we went away from sort of the, the the flawed, realistic hero dealing with a fantastic circumstance. And I'm not even sure we've really gotten back to that. I can't think many movies that are in that vein. This is a really very, uh, it's so gritty. You know, it's, it's, there's so much realism. And I think they struck on two, two different types of realism. One is the realism of the locale. So, the way that it looked, you bought that totally as a, 
a working outpost, you know, an Antarctic out- outpost. It didn't. It wasn't slick and new. It looked like, you know, the, all the doors go when they open and when they close or anything like that. This was just a place for people to go for six months to work on, to study weather, whatever, you know. So that worked out very well. Then the other thing is how the people looked and reacted with each other. They They seemed like they were people that had been out a while and they were... They were putting in their time. Nobody in there is talking about, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be going back, you know, in in two months, and I can't wait to get off out of this stupid thing. You know, everybody was just kind of doing their time there. It it had a very, for me, a realism, a feel of realism. Now, you know, I've never been to the Antarctic. I've never been to a, a place like that, so I don't know if it's real. But it, they really did a good job of making it feel real. So we're about to wrap this up. Let's go ahead and. Uh, have our little post discussion uh, after our discussion here what what are your further thoughts on this movie to wrap it up this has been a fun conversation but i, I have to say that my mind hasn't changed uh, i really haven't changed much on this movie basically because i've seen it so much and uh you know the things that we talked about i'm all in agreement of i think it's um an amazing film and and i guess my i'm a little bit blinded i've always loved this movie so it's really hard for me to get too critical i i feel the same way my thoughts haven't really changed um i think uh one thing that i maybe have meditated on more or thought on more while we were discussing this is uh how well this has held up you know how how just timeless of a movie this is for still having the you know and even watching it earlier today the the impact of the scares and the the practical effects and the way that it felt watching this there are times that i thought man you could there are movies that are coming out today that have this same feel or or can't even get to the same feel you know they don't have the same power that these scenes do i just i think that's amazing and and timeless especially when you compare it to other movies that you know are 40 years old now it doesn't feel like this one. It doesn't impact like this one does. So I think it's a it's a rare and special thing. Another thing, too, that I was thinking about, something that we all commented on, was kind of how we see the beginning and the end of the outpost, but ultimately the story begins before it's on the outpost, and then it's also there's a story after this. And there's so many things that are left ambiguous in such a tasteful way, you know, in, the, in a way that I'm not going... What is this? What what's going on here? Because we don't really know. I'm sure that there are details out there, a hundred percent of what the outpost is, but we don't know exactly. But at the same time, that's not a detail that I'm I'm tied up in or caught up in, and and it kind of lends itself to you know I can use my imagination to kind of fill in the blanks. Same way with the you know what we discussed with the the monster itself, not really ever getting a clear look at what its you know original form is and stuff it really plays on in such a very tasteful way it plays on your own imagination to kind of build the tension and the horror of the thing i think my final thoughts this this conversation has sort of made me think about this movie in a more basic way in terms of what is good storytelling and what is a what appeals to me and i think 
my takeaway from this movie is I would really, as we've talked about this, I'd really like to see more movies that are economical in the, the way they present the story and have a very grounded characterization. And with, you know, it doesn't, everybody doesn't have to fit a mold that, you know, you cookie cutter uh, a type of actor or, you know, this character has to be the heroic person that does everything by the book and blah, 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 blah. You have this character or this is the anti. You you know, this movie feels like almost like a documentary with really good cinematography. Mm-hmm. Special effects are my, not the weakness in my mind, but, but it has that sort of feeling like you're watching a period of time and it's very compelling in that way. And so I would like to see more movies in this vein, but sadly we don't get many like that, especially in the science fiction horror genre. And I lo- one of the things I really liked about this that puts it in a different, it, it distinguishes it from Alien. I was hoping Ripley was would survive. I wanted her to survive at the end of that movie. This movie, I'm not so sure I wanted anyone. And that was part of the direction, I think, of how John Carpenter shaped that movie. And I just feel like this is a, uh, it's, there's too few movies made like this. And so I hope we see, you know, watching this, I want to see more movies in that vein. As Wes was talking, and basically I came across the same thing that you're just talking about, but I want to reiterate that the thing, some of the stuff that I liked about this movie are the same things that I liked about our last review of Face Off. It was economically written, and there was really no fluff. It really didn't have any political agenda. The agenda of the movie was to entertain, and I really don't think either of these movies went beyond that, and I I would love to see more movies like that, so... And Maverick. Yeah, Maverick as well. Absolutely. I thought that was fairly economical too. So that, and that's, that gives me hope, you know, that, uh, that they can still do that. You know, they, they don't have to be Batman, you know, two and a half hours long with, you know, scenes that don't matter and people running their mouths about things that are stupid. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, that's my, uh, my opinion. It's not everybody's. Well, I think we pretty much beat this, uh, <laughs> this movie to death. If you've not seen this movie, I highly recommend you go out and watch it. It's um, it's on. I'm pretty sure it's on a streaming service somewhere. Uh, I watched it on. I watched it on Apple TV. Apple TV. Yeah, I. It, it wasn't. It is not on Netflix. Uh, it might have been and, and dropped it. I don't know, but I ended up watching it on. Um, I own it on Vudu. So I watched it on Shutter. Oh, did you? Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Just it just came on Shutter. Very cool. Yeah, that's right. I thought it was on Netflix and I clicked on it and it said, Hey, yeah, <laughs> this is a night. And then when you try to put play, it doesn't play. So I got fooled. Yeah. It, it does. must've been on. And then it went away. Yeah. It likes to do a thing where it says, Hey, we don't have that one. We got all these other great movies for you to see. <laughs> I would call this meeting of the Kino club adjourned. I hope you all have a great night and uh, Norbert Marshall have a great evening later bye bye thanks for hanging out with us on the true fiction podcast if you like what you've heard please visit us at Facebook you can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app until next time stay true and stay creative you're too late Somewhere else, catch a ride, catch a ride somewhere else.